Tom, let me um, let me go to something that is, uh, uh, you know, being around during the during the uh, 2008 crisis as well. Again, being in a financial institution, we saw <laughs> a lot of people lose their jobs because the economy got hit. And, you know, there, was, there were some mergers, acquisitions. And I could I could talk for hours about how some institutions handled their the, the post impact, if you will. But um, accountability, there's still there's still a lot of uh, thought that perhaps people that uh, helped enable the crisis were not accountable. You hear that, too, in just white collar crime in general. You and I talked offline that the justice, this Justice Department has just recently come out with their sort of priorities and their priority is white collar crime prosecutions. We see it a lot in the in the anti money laundering space. Are you know you're finding banks, but I know you can ban people from banking. But you're you know are are you really holding people accountable? Let me start with that. What's your take on accountability? Now again, from what we've already discussed in part one, a lot of it falls on the regulations that were created, the political angles that occurred. You're not absolving. The private sector at all, but you're making the case, which I think makes sense, is that private sector has to react to what's available. And so they do that. And if it's not, quote, illegal, you can question maybe the, uh, you know, why certain things were done. But th- that's different than holding somebody technically or legally accountable. What's your take on accountability in the, in the banking space? Is, the, is there enough? Does there need to be more? Does that send appropriate messages? Or can that just go down a rabbit hole where, Certain people will, will become accountable, but perhaps those that are driving the pro- problems won't won't be. Yeah. So, John, that that is an incredibly important question because it's it it raises the specter of Main Street versus Wall Street and the whole question about if people are getting away with uh, with uh, something they shouldn't be. And let me give you my perspective as both a practitioner, a regulator, a practitioner for forty five years, and and now historian to the extent that uh, I've looked at it in perspective in this book. I'll, I'll start by saying the following. There is no industry in America, and I challenge anybody to come up with an industry in America that is more accountable for its actions than the banking business. If you look at the savings and loan crisis, the Association of American Bank Directors under David Barris did a, uh, a report, and I think the number was about 33%, about a third of the directors of savings and loans, of failed savings and loans, were ultimately sued by the FDIC or the FSLIC. Um, That's an incredibly large number, number one. Number two, that sends an incredibly important message to the industry. I don't think there's any director on any bank in this country that doesn't know if that bank gets in trouble that they are in trouble. And if that bank fails, that they will be sued uh, if they've done anything wrong. So I I challenge anybody to come up with an industry that is more accountable than that. Certainly the technology business uh, has no accountability as best as we can see today. So that's number one. Uh, Number two is when we're talking about accountability, we have to decide who it is we want to hold accountable. And that's where we get into the dichotomy here of over-regulating banks and under-regulating the rest of the marketplace. And let me give you an example that I, that I put in the book, which I think is compelling. Um, the banking business 
that, it, that we have today is regulated by a set of laws that were enacted between 1932 and 1940. They've been amended many times, but the structure, the fundamental structure of regulation we have today, both in terms of prudential regulation and market regulation by in terms of disclosure in the SEC, was all created between 1932 and 1940. And it was mostly directed at banks. Of course, disclosure is, regular, is, is directed at public companies. But with respect to all the prudential regulation that we created, as opposed to market regulation, all the prudential regulation was directed at banks. And in the 1930s, that made enormous sense. Why? Well, it made sense because banks were 95% of the financial services market, right? And so if you wanted to regulate the market prudentially, you regulated banks. Well, let's fast forward to 2021, in which any way you count it, if you compare deposits to assets under management, any way you want to count it, banks are now about 35% of the financial services market, right? right? So there's a 65% factor that we're not regulating prudentially. What does that mean? It means we're spending all of our prudential resources and time on regulating 35% of the financial services market. Well, that makes no sense because it says to the marketplace, if you really want to take a lot of risk, move it away from the areas that are prudentially regulated. And maybe then you can sell it back into the prudentially regulated areas like mortgage-backed security. That, that makes absolutely no sense in terms of what the markets look like today, because they look nothing like the markets did in the 1930s. So I think that's the second part of the problem. And that is, we're trying to hold bankers accountable for everybody's risk profile. And bankers are only 35% of that picture. And the last point I will say is having worked on a, a, a vast number of criminal prosecutions, as well as civil prosecutions, because as you know, after the savings and loan crisis, everything became criminalized right. uh, in the banking business. Uh, the Crime Control Act of 1990 was pretty good at that. And I think I heard uh, one prosecutor uh, talk and say, after the Crime Control Act of 1990 and the change in the sentencing guidelines, uh, a banker who committed fraud from behind his or her desk in a bank could get more jail time than a robber who had a ski mask and a gun and walked in the front door. Right. So, yeah. you know, th that changed dramatically. Uh, but the question people ask is, why aren't there more people in jail? And the answer I would give you from being at ground zero is, is, is very simply, it's not a crime to be aggressive, right? It's not a crime to be financially aggressive. And it's financial aggressiveness that, get, that causes most of these financial crises, not crime. The savings and loan business did not collapse because of crime. The 2008 crisis did not collapse because of crime. They collapsed. Those things happened because of uh, poorly thought out government policies and uh, aggressive risk management and aggressive risk taking. But aggressive risk taking is not a crime for which you can put be put in jail. And I will tell you, I have been in enough matters where there are, are enough zealous prosecutors who wanted to put people in jail and just couldn't do it because they couldn't find the crime. And so that's the problem. We're, we're regulating, very often regulating the wrong things in the wrong ways for the wrong reasons. And we've got to get smart about how we regulate to fix all of this because it's only going to get worse. Like COVID with technology, 
technology is, is sort of the, <clears throat> the trigger that is creating all kinds of changes in financial services that is only going to make our problems worse and only going to create more uh, ferocious financial crisis. You have a great line in the book, among many, where you're talking about the financial uh, future of the pandemic. You say, once Congress acts, everybody is already knee deep in the problem. And that's obviously so true. But the front of your book, uh, the the book jacket actually has uh, uh, pictures of Bitcoin. So talk to us a bit about uh, cryptocurrency. Like you've already said, such a small amount is regulated today. And we've heard from Yellen and Powell regarding the concerns about crypto. Uh, I can tell you our company, we, uh, we have several clients that uh, are exchangers, you know, and we have fintechs and they obviously are bringing in people uh, with compliance backgrounds, kind of you know, rushing to make sure they have some of that. But, you know, their regulation is certainly different than a traditional bank. Where, where does crypto fit into your sense of what needs to change to have a more robust and intelligent regulatory infrastructure. Yeah, so crypto is probably the poster child for what I've been arguing about in terms of functional regulation. In the early 1980s, I sat on the vice presidential task force, which was George Herbert Walker Bush at that time, uh, on financial regulation. And the result of that was a detailed report that recommended functional regulation of financial services in America. That report came out in 1984. Functional regulation, (laughs) right? It has done a terrific job at gathering dust, like most government studies and projects and reports do. Uh, And here we are now in in the next phase, and we're going to pay the price for not having moved towards functional regulation. Because take cryptocurrency, Bitcoin as an example. And, you know, I, I don't know where people, you know, you can pick a place to come out. Uh, I, I sort of come out where Jamie Dimon is, what he said a few weeks ago, that as far as he can tell, it's worthless. And what I mean by that is there's no intrinsic value, right? There's, there's nothing underlying right. uh, this stuff unless it's a stable coin and then there's other issues that, that, that align with stable coins. But how is it that we've gotten to a point where we've got two to three trillion dollars of crypto out there doing whatever it's doing? you know, making believe it's money, but really acting as a, as a commodity or a security, uh, and in some respects, a hope certificate, and not have some sort of prudential regulation over that. Because if you come back to the fundamentals of prudential regulation, as articulated in the 1984 Vice President Task Group report, it is that you should regulate uh, activities that impact financial services and financial stability, not just banks, right? right? And so does crypto have an impact on financial stability? It sure might, mm-hmm. right? Um, and all those things. So whether you think it's, it's, it's a long-term winner or a long-term loser, it's having an impact and it's going to have an impact on financial services and, and everybody's financial lives. And therefore, if we want to regulate risk evenly throughout the system, there ought to be some form of prudential regulation with respect to crypto. Uh, And, you know, Bitcoin came out in 2009. We are sitting here in 2021 debating whether there ought to be some sort of regulation of crypto. Now, my my theory, which I wrote back in, I guess, 2012 or 13, was the government would not act for fear of stifling innovation until it saw that there was a critical mass in the product. 
Well, now we've gotten to the point where there's a critical mass. And the question is, is the government too late? Because you know and I know it's always the question with regulation. Is it too early or is it too late? Yeah, exactly. And we're only going to find out. But the regulators seem to be scurrying quite uh, frantically right now to come up to speed and figure out what to do. But look, the bottom line here is a regulator, you have to say to yourself, if there's something out there that has increased in value dramatically, where the volume has increased exponentially, and there is no intrinsic value in the product, you have to assume that there's a very small margin of error between that product's functionality and some sort of disaster or crisis. You just have to assume that. So the question is, if you make that assumption, now that crypto has a critical mass, what do you do with it? How do you regulate it? And where do we go from here? It's probably going to have its place somewhere in the financial uh, universe. Right. And the question is going to be, how are the regulators going to, uh, going to deal with it? But I come back to my fundamental predicate, and that is, it is painfully unfair to put banks through the mill to do anything and get new products approved and allow Facebook or Meta, whatever, you know, it's new right. name, to put out a cryptocurrency tomorrow without any approval. <laughs> it just, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. And complying with AML money transmitter laws is not close to having to comply with prudential regulation and all that comes with that. Yeah, I think that that is so true. We've seen that in our space. Um, I want to a- ask you two, uh, two more things to opine on from your book. One is you uh, tr- you trumpet the need for financial literacy, and certainly I don't disagree. The sad thing about 2021 is where people get their information today uh, is obviously so disparate. People are in such bubbles, um, you know, having people hoping that people will actually better understand products and services is, I will say it's a lost cause, but it's probably a tough one, but tell us what you'd like to see done in terms of financial literacy. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think the internet has created uh, just the opposite of what we thought instead of a highly, uh, sophisticated intellectual period of knowledge, I think it's created an age of ignorance where everybody gets a slogan passed by them in some form of social media and that becomes the truth, right? Right. And, and that's something that society has got to deal with uh, from beginning to end. But when it comes to financial literacy, let me tell you a, a story. When I started the control of the currencies office in 1976, for two years, uh, I was the truth and lending guru and or at least one of them and i did consumer compliance for two years my job was to get every consumer complaint investigate it and then write a letter to um, the bank president and conclude whether or not they had violated something or did something wrong and get some remediation from the bank and that's what i did every day for two years at the control of the currencies office and i remember the first letter i ever wrote uh, on a 10-point uh, type truth and lending case, uh, I had the right to dear Mr. Reston, Reston the <laughs> chairman and president of Citibank, <laughs> telling him that their, the truth and lending disclosures in certain cases were not 10-point type. It's funny. <laughs> and, and, and I sat back after doing that for a number of years, and I said, what is the point of this? <laughs> I, I said, there's no way in the world that we can protect, protect every consumer from every possible wrong that's happening right. and, and the writing of more regulations and the creation of more disclosures and more paper 
so that when you close a mortgage loan, you have a foot of paper you have to sign, is not helping the consumer one lick because you know what? There's not a consumer on this earth, not you, not me, not anybody else that reads all that paper. No, of course not, yeah. Right? So it, it, once the disclosure gets before, be, beyond five lines and one page, you're not doing the consumer any good. And it occurred to me in the late 1970s, and then when I became general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board and the FSLIC, I tried to articulate this, but we were so busy closing savings and loans that other things had to fall to the side that I thought that we were wasting our money on enforcement and writing rules and regulations when we could be devoting that, those resources to uh, financial literacy. And what I have argued for the last several decades is if we took every dime that was used to write rules, regulations, hire people and regulators, bring enforcement actions by regulatory agencies uh, in this area, we took all of that money and we poured it into financial literacy, we would be much farther ahead today, 40 years later than we are. Why is it that you can get out of high school or college without taking financial literacy courses? Why is it that banks and financial services companies in every community in this country are not working with the school districts to provide either after school or in school financial services tutoring and financial services classes to students. I mean, it's a win-win. The students right. walk away with the ability to control their financial lives and the financial institutions may walk away with customers for life. I mean, it's, it's a win-win. I don't understand why that isn't happening in every community throughout this country. And if it did, and we had literate, financially literate citizens running their own lives, we wouldn't need the regulatory structure we continue to have to create and maintain to protect them. So again, we're spending the dollars in the wrong way and getting no result for it. Uh, you know, that's, that's so insightful and so true. I'm involved with a, a commercial banking program at Marquette University, and uh, it's a nascent program, a couple of years in, uh, maybe they had uh, this undergrad, so maybe they have maybe 40 people have graduated thus far. And the lack of uh, understanding about banking specifically for people that want to be in this space is uh, obviously um, you know, hard, hard to imagine, but I can't imagine people like us who are you know, generally sophisticated. You're so right. We, we don't read these long statements. I do remember when I was at the ABA years ago when the privacy laws were passed, one of the first things that they said had to happen is that you had to send privacy notices each year to all your customers, even if the privacy notice didn't change. And I think they finally right. changed that right. like 15 years later after I'd long gone away. I remember saying to the staffs up there, wait a second, if the policy hasn't changed, why would we send back the same statement? That's a waste of money and time and energy. And of course, it was the politics of what, you know, whatever was going on at the time. L let me end on this and just urge everybody to, to, to get the book. Um, it just certainly has opened my eyes to some things, not just regarding uh, smart regulation, because I've always believed in that, but just clear examples. But uh, toward the tail end, you talk about technology uh, as, as obviously a winner, if done correctly. One of the things that's been positive about your old agency, I know several years ago, the OCC was pretty adamant, I think the current administration is as well, to encourage innovation. And I just remember the bankers at the time seeing that statement, that phrase and said, that's great, 
But if we're going to make a change in a system, we don't want to be held accountable during the transition time uh, when we're using the new and the old, if we miss some things. This is more in the AML space, but a legitimate question. So you can't say, let's use innovation and technology to be smarter and then still potentially ding an institution for misses during that period of time. Again, you know, something that sounds like well, who would do that? But that was a real fear from the from the bankers that I talked to. But just give us a sense, high level, on how technology, besides the obvious ways, that it can help us both prepare for future, hopefully no panics, but future crises and issues, and how it can improve the regulatory infrastructure. Yeah. So I think, John, it, it really comes down to information. The more information the regulator has, the better the regulator is going to be at making good judgments and predictive judgments. And right now, you know, there's no in- source of information that's built on big data, no source of information that's built on running artificial in- uh, intelligence algorithms, no source of information that, that really is other than sort of the hands-on approach of sending examiners into the bank, looking at the statements and trying to figure out where the bank is. Uh, and what I've always been remarkably uh, surprised at is that most of the process is microeconomic, meaning you look at the bank as, as a, an entity. You don't look at the bank in a community uh, economy, a national economy, or a global economy to figure out how its balance sheet will interrelate to what's going to happen in the economy. And so it raises the spectra of looking at these things more predictively. Can we run scenarios? I mean, ask yourself if Facebook or Amazon was regulating financial services, how they would do it, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. they would be so sophisticated. They would know what the bank's going to do tomorrow. They would know what the economy is going to do tomorrow. And they would say, look, we've got to make some adjustments in the regulation to deal with that. And that's precisely why in the last 200 years, no one in this country in, in a regulatory agency has ever predicted or seen the next crisis coming. We're always completely unprepared. And so technology is the way to bridge that gap to get to a better prepared state. And I have, a, I have an interesting section in the book that I worked a long time on and thought about it to, to, to talk about how the 2008 crisis could have been different if we used technology. If we had collected big data going back to 1970 and were evaluating it in the early 2000s from every possible vantage point and perspective and giving that information to the regulators, I will bet you that they would have seen what was coming at least five years before it came. And I bet you they would have been able to take steps to ameliorate some of that. And so that's what I think we've got to do in the future. We've got to get on real-time regulation. We've got to get more predictive in terms of analyzing scenarios. I wouldn't let the machines make the decisions, but I sure would let the machines produce more predictive scenarios that regulators can look at and use to regulate based on what scenarios are going to develop in the future. And I'll I'll end with this final uh, uh, sort of warning. And that is the the next book I'm writing is on the insecurity of the internet and the complete insanity of what we're doing in terms of putting every inch of data and every ounce of financial value onto an internet or a network that is getting insecure, more insecure every day. Because experts will tell you we are creating insecurities far faster than we are creating the solutions because the market rewards innovation. Right. Right. And when we get and, and I, I, I read an article yesterday in the MIT Technology Review, which I thought was 
so interesting and so on point to what I've been thinking about in terms of where the crisis we're headed for in terms of the insecurity of where we're putting on all, all our value. MIT Technology Review article uh, this week said that there are actually hackers out there stealing databases today that they can't get into, but that they will be able to get into within the decade when they get quantum computing. So uh, th think about that, right? Yeah. Stealing data today to be able to break in it 10 years from now or five years from now. I mean, there's, there's nobody in charge of this future. Right. And it's, 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 a, it's a point made by people who are experts in artificial intelligence. People are in charge of financial services. People are in charge of energy, whatever, wherever you want. There's nobody in charge. There's nobody making the decisions. And in effect, with nobody making the decisions, we're letting technology make the decisions. And that's not going to be a good end result. Oh, I, yeah, I so agree. I, uh, as I was reading your book um, on, your, on your last point, you made a reference to, you know, to cyber, no centralized cyber. And I kept thinking, why isn't he referring to the FSI SAC, which you do later in, later in your book, which was, is a private sector group of bankers, obviously, that share information on attacks and, and that sort of thing. But it's not enough. I mean, so right. it's things like that that need to be encouraged. But let me end on this, which is um, I, I can't say I'm hopeful, but I do. You say this pretty early on in the book in terms of political response. You say you would recommend an establishment of a bipartisan group of legislators, which <laughs> we can say what we want about that. But yeah. similar to the Joint Committee on Taxation, to try to depoliticize financial services. And you talk about having, you know, PhDs, economists, accountants, all, all sorts of committee staff that have different backgrounds that perhaps could uh, be an area, financial services could be an area where if we could depoliticize it and come up with potential solutions. So sort of like, again, not, not being facetious, sort of like what should have happened, what did happen with the 9-11 commission. So after 9-11, as we know, this bipartisan group came together and said, we need to do this, 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 and this. Uh, unfortunately, that hasn't happened with January 6th. But having something in financial services, which should be seen as somewhat nonpartisan or bipartisan, that's, to me, you're so on point, is the only way that we're going to get away from reaction as opposed to being proactive. And perhaps, um, you know, something like that, in addition to everything else you mentioned, can get picked up by policymakers. That, that's, that's our hope, at least. Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, it may be pie in the sky, but I know that I saw the problem. And that is, in each financial crisis we had, 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1893, 1907, you I mean, just go back to 1837, Andrew Jackson sort of undercuts the market by basically saying you can only pay for land that you buy from the federal government with gold. Right. Well, that one fell swoop, he undercuts the credibility and the validity of all the banknotes that are out circulating as money, right? Mm -hmm. So politics in each one of these has played a role. And I'm not saying that the goal is, is a bad goal of politicians. But I'm saying that when you mix politics with finance, 
you are creating a very combustible stew. And today, I think we're doing it to the extent that we're trying to politicize finance and banking through uh, the issues such as uh, climate change, social justice. All of those things are terrific goals. Right. But but how you how you inculcate them into financial regulation will say how and whether we're going to have a financial crisis down the line. Because as I've said, and as I've learned throughout my career, markets do what the markets are going to do. And markets don't listen to government, they react to government, right? It's like water sort of rushing around a rock. Water doesn't stop at the rock, it rushes around the rock and creates a different path. We've got so many rivers in this country that was created much that way. If we thought about political intervention in, in, in financial services that way, we'd be much better off. So to the extent we can create a body in the Congress that can eliminate some of the political influence and focus on solid, rigorous analysis to, to create financial policy in this country, we will be much better off. Tom, Tom Vartanian, thank you so much. This has been uh, such an interesting, I could talk another couple hours with you, but I'm looking forward to the next book, of course. And, you know, let's hope at some point when your next book comes out, we've started down the road of some smart regulation. We'll see if that uh, actually occurs. Um, 200 years of American financial panics, crashes, recessions, depressions, and the technology that will change it all. Tom Vartanian, thank you so much. Stay safe and we'll talk again. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be with you.